you forget to do your holiday shopping, hey, have no fear. We here at Bella News have you covered with that perfect gift, even a late gift, to give to that cyclist in your life. It's the Bella News Pass and Active Pass digital memberships. Right now, we have a great deal going on with both. As you all know, Bella News Pass and Active Pass gets you access to the exclusive content on bellanews.com. Bella News Pass also gives you a print magazine subscription ad-free digital experience at VeloNews.com, personal life feeds, industry discounts, Active Pass gets you that, plus access to today's planned coaching, Roll Massive events, two books from Velo Press, much, much more. And right now, you can get VeloNews Pass for $41.65 for a 12-month subscription and Active Pass for $84.15 for a 12-month subscription. These deals won't last, but they're going on right now. For more information, go to bellanews.com forward slash Active Pass and sign up for you or sign up for that cyclist in your life who you forgot to get a holiday gift for. Again, it's not too late. bellanews.com forward slash Active Pass. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Bell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you. Final, uh, what is today? Tuesday of 2020. It is cold and bitter outside. There's snow on the ground. I hope you all had a great Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever holiday you celebrated over the last week or 10 days. Uh, we are speeding towards the end of the year. And as such, we're going to have a 2020 wrap-up podcast today. That's right. We're going to have a podcast where we look back at some of the stories from the last year, at some of the big performances from the last year. Um, and we try to get ourselves out of our spare bedrooms and our home offices and the uh, corners of our houses that have become our workstations in this very strange 2020 and remember the year. Um, it was, you know, whatever. Anything that's been, anything that could be said about 2020 has been said. It was not my favorite year. It was a year in which we here at Vela News adapted to the international situations and COVID-19 and found ways to cover races. We didn't really go to a ton of races, which was a bummer, but um, we, we hunkered down, especially for that August through November period where there seemed to be five bike races going on every single day and uh, watched them live and reported from them and wrote lots and lots of stories. And I hope that our content and our efforts to cover the world of pro cycling helped you in your own respective lives uh, in this most challenging year. Um, on the phone today, to go back and look back at 2020, we have both Andrew Hood calling in from Spain and Jim Cotton calling in from an undisclosed location somewhere north of London, where I believe... Jim, you are in a lockdown of sorts right now. Uh, Jim, we'll start with you. What is the situation where you are and how is it impacting your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, hey, Fred. So I live an hour outside of London and um, here in the UK, there's a tiered lockdown sy uh, system. And because I'm in the worst hit place, uh, all essential shops and non-essential travel is shut down. So it's pretty much like it was back in April. So I've just reverted back to uh, to how I was then, basically. Can you go ride your bike outside? Yeah. They, in in the spring, there used to be a like an hour restriction on how long you could exercise for. But there's, there's as far as I'm aware, there's no time limit or distance limit on where you go. So making hay on quiet roads. Yeah. And I mean, earlier this year, I talked to some nutter up there in the north of England. 
who used the lockdown as an opportunity to write 24 straight hours on Zwift. I mean, are you feeling compelled to do something like that? Are you going to have some like weird uh, 36-hour stunt where you ride indoors uh, as many kilometers as you possibly can? I think I think I'll pass. I mean, a few bolts in my brain have been rattled by uh, the last year, but they're still intact enough to uh, to prevent me from doing that. Ah, that's good. Good to hear. I don't want to have to write about you on the site of like you know, uh, zany Englishman rides forty eight hours straight on Zwift and um, you know speaks in tongues now. Uh, Hoodie, has anything changed in the last week since we caught up with you? In the north of Spain, um, other than, you know, you had the Christmas holiday, I would assume there was probably like Zoom calls and or uh, carrier pigeon messages sent back and forth between you and your extended family. How did you guys do Christmas there? Yeah, it was uh, indeed a virtual Christmas. Got on the Zoom call with the extended family. And, uh, you know, instead of arguing and drinking and eating at the same table, we just did it through a series of laptops. So it really wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, better safe than sorry, kind of getting close to the light at the end of the tunnel. So no one wanted to take any chances, uh, this close to the finish line. So yeah, it was a good Christmas, different, you know, hopefully it won't be this way next year. Um, now I know from my own personal experiences with extended family Christmas, sometimes the best antidote to the, um, uh, social awkwardness of extended family Christmas is like, you know, the eggnog and the wine, the red wine and the eggnog. Uh, how'd you guys handle that over Zoom calls? I mean, were you just, did you just have like the bottle of wine next to the laptop? Um, like the big bottle of eggnog right there too? I mean, were you engaging just in conversation or were you like trying to recreate it with, you know, the the cookies and the wine? Yeah, I think actually uh, on that night, uh, we ended up polishing off several different uh, liqueurs because uh, we were doing just that. So you finished up a bottle of Uzo a bottle of Pacharan, which is like a Spanish anise, uh, finished off the last of uh, Arujo, which is kind of a Spanish grappa. And I've polished off my bottle of Aperol to make a spritz before dinner and polished off an entire bottle of wine. So, you know, Hoodie had a really bad hangover on Christmas Day. That was, that was my present to myself. <laughs> oh, Merry Christmas indeed, everyone. Well, we from Bella News hope that you all had all of your Aperols and um, – grappas and and Spanish aperitivos uh, as well on Christmas Eve. Uh, Guys, we're speeding towards 2021. We're recording this Tuesday, uh, final Tuesday of the year, and um, we're going to look back at some of the stories from 2020, and we're going to honor some of the performances from 2020. I'm sure the readers have been reading on VeloNews.com. We've been putting up our awards copy, you know, Rider, the International Cyclist of the Year, Anna van der Bregen, Road Racer of the Year, Welt van Aert, Best Day of Racing, Stage 20, Tour de France, stuff like that, the traditional awards. Um, what I wanted to do for the podcast today, though, was copy uh, the league that I also follow, which is the NBA, which is, you know, at the end of the season for the NBA, they do this thing called the old the All-NBA Team, which is where they have all these sports riders and media types vote on first team, second team, and third team, all NBA. And and that is, they get the, the five positions on a basketball team, which is two guards, two forwards, and a center. And they vote people onto those teams. So basically, the, the five best starters of the year from across the league as voted by sports writers. And I was like, you know, that could be a fun concept to apply to cycling if you take a grand tour team 
which is eight riders, and you elect the best positional riders from like, you know, your GC to your breakaway guy to your flats domestique to your sprinter and kind of create almost like a fantasy team for 2020 based off of the top performers. And so that's what we're going to do today. We have eight positions for a Grand Tour team. And those positions are your Grand Tour GC rider, your classic slar slash ruler, your puncture and breakaway guy, your climbing domestique, your flats domestique, TT rider, your sprinter, and your rookie slash breakout rider. And we're going to go through the performances of the year and elect riders to that category. We're going to argue and debate. We are going to get angry at each other and call each other stupid for having uh, different choices than our very own. And we're going to do this in a very orderly fashion because of podcasting. Um, I think the way that we're going to do this is Jim Cotton is going to go first, followed by Andy Hood, and then myself. And then we will have a little bit of debate in there about uh, who we're going to ultimately elect to each uh, each category. So with all that said, I think we're going to kick off with the um, category that is the most prestigious, if not probably one of the easier ones to figure out, and that is Best Grand Tour GC Rider of the Year. Jim Cotton, we're going to start with you. Who is your choice and why? Well, it was it was a two-horse race for me, and of the two Slovenian horses, it went to Primoz Roglic, um, mainly because of, well, obviously he won the Vuelta, but the consistency through the season, I thought, is what makes him stand out. So, obviously, very nearly won the Tour, won the Vuelta, would have won the Dauphiné uh, before the Tour, won another French race before the Tour as well, and he's just, he just seems incredibly reliable like i would bet on him to be top three of any grand tour next year hmm okay we got to vote for roglic hoodie who you got yeah i'm gonna go on the other slovenian horse and uh pogachar just the way he raced i mean looking at the kid how young he is and the and the spectacular fashion that he won the tour de france uh, to me, it just reveals a superstar in the making. I mean, he already is a superstar. I mean, remember what he did last year at the Vuelta España, won three stages and almost really blew up the race on the final day of that Vuelta last year. People kind of don't remember that, but, you know, he, he really put uh, Valverde under pressure for that second place. And, you know, had he kept riding away, he might have won the whole Vuelta on the last day, just like he did with the Tour this year. And the fact, the way he races – and I know, Fred, you did some reporting on this and how well he recovers and just what a natural engine the guy has. Uh, I just see him as, as you know, put a rocket next to that guy because there's no stopping Pogachar anytime okay. soon. Okay. So as this is a democracy, we have three people, which is going to, you know, the third vote is going to be the decider. So I'm going to be coming in off the top rope here uh, with my um, wrestling move, my suplex. And I'm going to suplex and put... Tade Pogachar into the lead. I am also voting for Pogachar. Um, the reason I voted for Pogachar over Roglic is a, a couple things. First, he won the Tour de France, and you know Roglic won the Vuelta, and he won all those races. I'm sure he would trade all of those for winning the Tour de France. Uh, the second is that Roglic commanded the strongest team in all of cycling that dominated the Tour de France and dominated the Vuelta. Pogachar, meanwhile, 
was like a man without a country. He was out there with, you know, his Fabio Aru's dropping out of the race. His other climbing domestiques are getting sick. Um, he is this one-man wrecking ball who came in, won four stages and the overall. And, um, yeah, I just think that he had a better year as a GC star. All the things that Hoodie said. So, Pogachar, congratulations. You are our best Grand Tour slash GC rider of the year. Also, um, there's this uh, documentary that just dropped yesterday. Uh, NOS, N-O-S, which is a Netherlands Dutch site, uh, produced this you know behind-the-scenes look at Jumbo Visma through the Tour de France. And it's interesting. I say give it a read. If you speak Dutch, it will probably mean a lot more to you. But they do have some really interesting behind-the-scenes footage of Roglic. Uh, and after that stage 20... Um, TT defeat. Uh, he looks really, really upset and sad and bummed out. It was, uh, it was a pretty good watch. I, I recommend you guys check it out, even if you don't speak Dutch. What you got, Hoodie? Uh, just to set the record straight so we don't sound like complete uh, you know, isolationist Americans. It is Tade Pogacha. Uh, that's right. Pogacha. Tade. It's not Pogachar. Pogacha. I know. We got some criticism on Twitter, if you can imagine that. Someone on Twitter was critical of us. Ah! Uh, about our pronunciation. So yes, Tadej Pogaccia is our GC man of the year. Okay, on to the next category, best classic star slash ruler. That, of course, winners of the large one-day races, all around person who you would uh, have on your team to beat up the other riders. Jim Cotton, who you got and why? Uh, continuing on the Jumbo Visma theme, it's got to be, it's got to be Wout Van Aert. As, uh, as Hoodie described him in a, in a nice story recently, he's, He's the all-terrain vehicle that can uh, that can do everything. So uh, one one Strada Bianca, one Milano San Remo, um, came second of the world, second of Flanders, crushed it in the mountains. I mean, he he can do everything, and I for me, there's no contest whatsoever. Basically, Hoodie? don't need to argue further. I don't think. Yeah, I'll play a little contrarian card here. I, I would pick uh, Mads Peterson. He kind of had a, a, a season that was overshadowed a bit. He was the, you know, reigning world champion going into 2020. And poor Mads, you know, never had a chance to really uh, show off his jersey. You know, he, he couldn't race the, the classics in the rainbow jersey because they got moved to what turned out to be after the 2021 uh, Worlds, rescheduled Worlds in Imola. And I was uh, making an online campaign, didn't really gain a lot of traction. A lot of people just told me, ah, oh, hoodie, bah. But I, my point was, you know, let let Matt's uh, race in the rainbow jersey at Flanders and Roe Bay if the new winner of the of the uh, rainbow jersey wasn't starting. I thought it was a, you know, a gesture that the sport could make out of goodwill in this what's been a very kind of crazy season. But of course, it turned out that uh, Roe Bay was canceled. And everyone just basically thought it was a bad idea. So uh, poor Mads did not get to race uh, the Northern Classics in the Rainbow Stripes, which I thought he deserved. But, you know, he came back and he was really in the mix uh, throughout the tour and throughout the big races. And really, I thought it stepped up in a way that impressed me. I mean, Wout is the guy, of course. I mean, he he is the new uh, uh, flag bearer of the Classics. I, I, I agree with Jim on that. But, you know, Mads is right there. He's still very young as well. Uh, I think younger than Wout. And... Uh, you know, one get Vogelgem. So, uh, chapeau to him. Impressive get Vogelgem, too. Uh, he was patient and he took advantage of when uh, Wood Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool kind of stared at each other and made that final move with what, like 3K to go. 
and uh, won the sprint. So, yeah, chapeau to you, Mads Peterson. Uh, I was all ready to argue on behalf of Matthew Vanderpool because he won Flanders and the Bink Bank Tour, the, the everyone's favorite race, the old Bink Bank Tour. Um, but I am going to, after after really thinking about this one and hearing you make your cases, I'm going to come down on the side of Jim Cotton. And the obvious choice here is Wout van Aert. Wout van Aert, the Swiss Army knife of cycling, can climb, can win classics races, can win sprints, can win TTs. He is hold the holder of the ring right now. And um, as you know, we've seen some reporting, he's likely to get paid quite handily or heavily uh, in 2022 when he has to renegotiate his contract. And uh, will he be driving a, in a Ineos Grenadier loaded with gold bars or will he be back in the Yumbo Visma train or somewhere else? I don't know. That's a big story to follow throughout the year. But Wout van Aert, one thing's for sure is his house is about to get a lot bigger. Um, and he is our best, best classic star of the year. Okay, on to Puncture slash Breakaway Man. This, of course is the category of uh, you know riders who you see in those long breakaways or riders who are winning in the hilly and steep uh, terrain. Not necessarily mountain guys, but, you know, like uh, the, the punchers. They're going to punch you in the face. Jim Cotton, who's your puncher of the year? My puncher of the year is, uh, is Mark Hershey, Fred. Uh, so the young 22-year-old Swiss Swiss man from uh, Team DSM. So uh, what I really liked was he was just one of many uh, of Team Sunweb who just really kind of grabbed a race by the scruff of the neck and was just on the offence pretty much every day. You know, he took a stage there. He won um, flesh. And he's just made in the mould of Julian Alaphilippe, but younger and more sparky and more impressive, I think. more Got more... I think he's got more long-term potential, put it that way. Maybe a bold a bold claim, but hey, there you go. I like it. And as you wrote uh, for our January-February print issue, he is the disciple of Fabian Cancellara, who's sort of his business manager, and they, you have a great piece in there about their relationship and how it began. So uh, Mark Hershey, I think that's a very good choice. Hoodie, who you got? Uh, since I am an old geezer, I'm going to go with Thomas Degat. I mean, he didn't have the greatest of seasons. I mean, I think he was a little bit overshadowed uh, by, you know, the, uh, by Hershey. And, of course, Alaphilippe had a great season in the breakaways as well. Um, but DeGant is the, is the modern master of the breakaway. It's, it's his canvas. And, uh, he, you know, he tried. He tried a few. This year's tour, of course, wasn't really tailored for the classic breakaway stage because uh, even the the stages that Hershey won and and some of the breakaways that did go were really much more difficult than the kind of old school kind of uh, a blueprint of what a, a tour breakaway rider is like. But to get for me still deserves uh, his spot at the top of that category. All right, so I'm coming in and saying it was Alaphilippe because he won the world championships and he won that tour stage and Brabantse Peel, but. I don't know, Jim, here's a question for you. How much should we punish poor Alaphilippe for his boneheaded moves uh, at uh, Liege-Bastogne-Liege and then at the Tour de France where he famously lost the yellow jersey because he took a feed at 17K to go? I mean, it, it's like on paper, you look at Alaphilippe's year and it's one of the best, like any rider in the peloton would trade their year for Alaphilippe's year from a results perspective. But then like two big boners in the same season like how should we treat that through the legacy of Julian Alaphilippe well I think I think Liège gets him a gets him a down vote for me for uh, over flamboyance 
you know, as, as a Brit, it's supposed to be all about sort of understated, uh, understated finesse. And I think the dude just wanted to wanted to show off a bit too early, and the showboating got the better of him that time. So it's minus one for Liège. Yeah, that's great. As someone who was watching uh, season four of The Crown. Um, I can yes attest to the stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. You know, just get on with it. Carry on. Uh, you, you need to watch Peaky Blinders to get the uh, the true idea of uh, what the UK is like. So I guess in this uh, case, then you know he would be the like nineteen eighty three version of Princess Diana. You know, really sort of uh, hamming it up in front of the press bulbs and having it sometimes go wrong. So. All right, I'm with you. I guess I will, you know, my heart says Philippe, but I think my head is going to say Mark Hershey and give Jim and his pick the advantage here. So Mark Hershey, congratulations. You are our puncher breakaway star of the year. And and you're, like you said, this is a guy we're going to be keeping our eyes on because such a big year, such a breakout year. And now the question is like, okay, man, how do you build on this? So Hershey, big rider to watch for 2021. Okay, um, you know, when you're building a Grand Tour team, of course, you got to have your domestiques, you got to have your worker bees, and perhaps the most important worker bee for a run at the GC overall is your climbing domestique. So, uh, Jim Cotton, who do you have as your top climbing domestique of the year, the guy that you want to shepherd your GC rider to the top of the uh, Col de la Lowe's or whatever? It took me about took me about half a second to decide that it was going to be Sepkus for this one. Uh, he could have won on the Anglerou. He could have won on the Col de la Lose, which were the two, pretty much the two hardest climbs of the year. And that was while he was pulling Primoz Roglic. And it's not just that he's got the climbing chops, you know, he, he can outclimb anyone, but he's just selfless all the way. Um, he held back for Roglic a number of times and he's just willing to play the team game. And yeah, the dude can climb. So definitely set. Friend of the podcast, too. I've heard him on the Villain News podcast multiple times. Uh, he has Andrew Hood saved in his phone. Or maybe Andrew Hood has him saved in his phone. Andy, who you got? Who's your top climbing domestique of the year? Well, uh, again, uh, I have to agree with Jim. But because, uh, you know, we all love Sepp and he had a, a spectacular season. But since I was a member of the high school debate club, you know, I'll argue any point, you know, effect, as much as I can, even if I don't agree with it, you know. So... I'll, I'll argue against that, but I'll say Richard Carapaz would be my super domestic because Carapaz is just as good a climber as anybody in the peloton, but he has that little extra panache or that kind of uh, killer instinct that I think we haven't really quite seen yet in, in Sep or like Sep's been, I think, such a team player that we just don't know if Sep has that kind of killer killer instinct, you know, I'm going to win the race, really instinct inside of him. Whereas Carapaz clearly has that. Of course, he, he is an outright leader. And I think he really has uh, emerged, you know, his move to Sky Enios this year. Just saw him, you know, take a huge step up from where he was even a Movistar. And I think he'll be rivaling actually next year, uh, Egon Bernal for leadership at the Tour de France. But if you have a rider like, uh, you know, that, that's what Enios has, that depth, that one, two, almost three rider punch that they can bring uh, two big riders, three big riders through any Grand Tour to be leaders, co-leaders, help each other and ride together. Uh, no teams really have that in the peloton right now. So I think just for those kind of small details, I would say Carapaz, a little bit more of the elite super helper 
than our friend Sepp, even though we all love Sepp. I like I like your choice, Andy. I think the one caveat there, though, is that Carapaz was not on a Grand Tour winning team this year, which is going to give him a little ding in my category. Uh, the man who I have put as the top climbing domestique is uh, a guy who we've written about for years and years and years here at VelaNews.com about his uh, accolades as a TT rider and his attempts to transform into a Grand Tour GC star. And that, of course, is the immortal Rowan Dennis, who uh, stage 18 of the Giro d'Italia proved his weight in gold as he completely detonated Wilco Kelderman, who was, you know, the favorite to take pink and uh, basically towed Teo Gegenhart into the into contention to take the pink jersey on the last stage, which Teo did, and chapeau to him. But you know, Teo has been outright in saying this that he does he doesn't think he could have won the Giro if it weren't for Rowan Dennis. There are stages eighteen and twenty, just mashing the field on these big climbs and completely uh, punching Sunweb in the face and taking uh, Wilco out of the picture. So I think it's Rowan. So this is good exercise for us. We have three people and we have three. Uh, choices. Andy, as, um, you know, I guess as sort of the moderator here of this discussion, I'm just going to go ahead and um, kick old Carapaz out of the discussion, which means you're going to have to come down on either the Sep, which side of the Mason Dixon line between Rowan Dennis and Sep Coos, and you're going to have to decide this choice for us. Oh, that's a no brainer. It's all Sep. I mean, okay. come on. I agree. He was there every major climb in the whole 2020 season. And Rowan Dennis, ah. <laughs> Congratulations to you, Sepp Kuss. Um And Sepp, I've been following you on uh, Instagram. Looks like you're having a very good holiday season there in uh, Catalonia, um, riding fun bikes. Okay, so if that's your climbing domestique, the guy who's shepherding your Tade Pogaccia through the mountains, uh, you got to have a flats domestique too, a guy who's shepherding, maybe leading the train uh, across the rolling terrain, setting up your sprinter, you know, your big burly guy who is on the flats so this is best flats domestique jim who you got my choice is more uh he's more a lead out guy really but he's also uh kind of road captain and the wise head it's uh michael morcov uh who was leading out sam bennett this year and um i think whoever he leads out he turns his sprinter into like one of the best in the world so obviously sam bennett was amazing uh, Bora, but he stepped up another level when he was kind of under the guidance of Michael Morkov. And uh, the guy's got years of experience sort of leading teams and playing the road captain. And he just brings that, seems to bring that edge of sort of uh, stability and confidence to a team. Yeah. Plus he's like, might be the best Flats Domestique on a team comprised of awesome Flats Domestiques. I mean, you like have Kasper Asgreen, uh, Bert Van Lerberger, uh, Zdenek Stibar, Steen Stiebar. I mean, all these big, burly, uh, Tim DeClerc, you know, you have your, your uh, the tractor. And so uh, not just a very good Flats Domestique, but like on a team of Flats Domestiques. Um, Hoodie, who you got? I'm going to go with uh, your man there, Luke Rowe, Team Ineos. I think his role on that team, even though, you know, Ineos was kind of derailed at the tour this year, he has a kind of a pretty important but subtle role on that team. I think that he's one of the few riders, along with maybe Garrett Thomas, that kind of really goes back to the old, you know, the early days of Ineos. 
So I think as that team has, you know, dramatically evolved in the last, uh, really just in the last two years, you know, Chris Froome's gone. Garen Thomas might be out the door after 2021. So he's kind of like one of the old pedigree riders on that franchise. So I think he plays an important role both inside the bus and on the road. And uh, I think that if I was going to bring my young new Colombians and Russians and whatever nationalities to lead uh, Enios in the future, I think you want to go like Luke Rowe there. Um, again, Hoodie has chosen a domestique for a team that did not win a Grand Tour. Well, he didn't win the Grand Tour. I know. He's, you're giving me the look like, ah, come on, Luke Rowe. I like Luke Rowe, too. I liked it when he uh, took the the sign out of that guy's hands where he's at the tour, remember? Caused a big old uh, kerfuffle. Um, so, again, we have a category now of three different people with three different choices because I am nominating Tim DeClerc. Harda, harda, harda. Big, tall Tim DeClerc, always on the front, pulling into the wind, with the wind, into the flats uh, of Team Dakuna Quickstep. Um, Hoodie, since unfortunately Luke Rowe did not win, um, his you know his his team did not win the Tour de France, you're going to be the decider here between which uh, Dakuna Quickstep uh, flats guy is the best, Michael Morkow or Tim DeClerc. Who you got? Yeah, I mean, you got to say that's a tie, really, right? I mean, DeClerc is the tractor on the classics, and Morkoff is the man uh, in the Grand Tours. Yeah, I would add that uh, DeClerc is just the big tractor that's pulling them along for about 150k, and then uh, it's down to Morkov to execute the sprint. So they're, they're slightly different, but both equally equally awesome. Okay, I'm fine saying it's a tie, or just saying like... Uh, Dakunic Quickstep in general are our best flats domestiques with Tim DeClerc and Michael Morkow getting the uh, elevation there. Okay, next category, not going to be a lot of debate here. I think we all probably have the same person. That is best TT rider. Jim, who you got? Top Gunner, Filippo Gunner. Hoodie? I even won't even debate that one. It's Ghana. All right. I say Ghana too. Um, and not only winning TTs, but like winning mountain stages, the Giro. My God, what can't this guy do? Um, he's definitely a big rider to watch for the future. Okay. I think we're going to have some debate here. How about this? Best sprinter. We had a number of sprinters winning big stages, lots of races this year. Jim, who is your sprinter that you want to take on your GC team? I found this one one of the hardest to decide, but I'm going to go with Arno Demar. Uh, he crushed it at the Giro. He French national champion, and I don't know. The dude's just resilient. He he never gets picked for the Tour de France because uh, his team always goes for um, Thibaut Pinot, and he always just bounces back and delivers the results. And uh, at the Giro, all of his stages came from kind of slightly different situations. Like sometimes he can sort of scrap and fight for wheels and do it by himself but he can also just deliver straight off the back of a, a train like old school style as well so oh no he gets it for me worthy rider how about you hoodie i think when it comes to picking the best sprinter you have to look to the tour even if it's uh it was kind of a the last two years the tour hasn't really been too friendly to the sprinters but the tour is still the highest bar in the sport and if you're a sprinter you want to win in the tour uh, Demar, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he's ever won a stage in the tour. He hasn't had many chances to go. Uh, but when you look at this year's tour, um, saw the huge uh, breakout with Sam Bennett. Um, you know, he really stepped up when he moved across to uh, quick step, had huge pressure on him. I remember speaking to him just even at the tour down under, and he was almost in tears after he won a stage there. 
And he was just saying that he couldn't understand how much pressure he had on himself and from the team, you know, him stepping into that role of Viviani left that has such a strong sprinting pedigree in that team that uh, even in those little races, these so-called little races and uh, the Qatar or, or Tour Down Under or the UAE Tour, these all these races really count. And the way he delivered in the Tour this year, you know, he won the green jersey, he won the final stage in the Champs and the way he delivered across the season for me, uh, He's the guy I would want to have on my all-star team. So my choice was Caleb Ewan, but I'm going to throw my choice out because both of you have made such good arguments on behalf of your uh, respective sprinter. And now I am going to have to be the hammer that comes down and decides which way we're going to go. Um, My head and heart say different things. My head says Damar because, yes, four stages of the Giro was unstoppable. Like Peter Sagan was nowhere even close. My heart, though, my heart says uh, Mr. Sam Bennett. Because he did take down Peter Sagan. He did the unthinkable, which was beat Peter Sagan at the game that he has dominated, winning the green jersey. He won two stages of the tour. And man, you just got to give it to the guy for the post-race interviews, you know? He's got that Irish brogue, got a lot of emotion there, maybe a couple of tears. I mean, he could just like draw emotion out of the most stone-cold, old-school uh, Belgian cycling fan. Or, you know, cycling is for tough men. And, you know, even that guy's going to melt like a snowball when uh, Sam Bennett's up there talking about how much it won for him. So, you know, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. We're going Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett, you beat Tour de, you beat uh, Peter Sagan at the Tour de France, won the green jersey. Congrats to you. You are our sprinter of the year, and I hope that you give lots more TV interviews and uh, pull at my heart spring, strings and, and make my eyes misty. Okay, last category we have. This is best rookie um, or breakout. I mean, I you know, it's great if it is actually a first-year person, but, like, this is sort of the, you know, the newbie who has really stepped up in a big way. Um, and you got to have those people on your team because uh, they give everyone hope. All right, Jim, who is your best rookie of the year? I give it to, uh, to Joao, Joao Almeida uh, from Quickstep for – for nearly winning the Giro d'Italia, really. Well, he was in the pink jersey for about 15 days. Um, pretty much every day, everybody was saying he was going to lose the lead, but he held it. Um, he eventually crumbled. Well, didn't crumble. He faded out and finished fourth, but it was his first ever Grand Tour, and he was riding, you know, for Quick Step, which isn't really a Grand Tour team. And he he surprised everyone, I think. And um, next year, if a team's sort of built around him a little bit more, although you're going to have Remco Evenepoel on the scene as well, then if Joao gets his chances, then he could podium on a Grand Tour, I think. And uh, it was a pretty impressive performance, even though the Giro field was, relatively speaking, weak. Yeah, and I feel like his ascendance forced everyone to reckon with the name Joao. Uh, it's just, you know, there's every now and again you get a Joao or a Joao and, and people are like, well, is it Joao? Is it, is it Joao? Like, how do you pronounce that? So uh, Joao, Joao. I've heard Joao, but I've also heard Joao. Anyway, that's definitely something we're going to have to keep our eyes on for, for 2021. Hoodie, who's your rookie of the year? <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I, I thought uh, Almeida had a spectacular rookie season. Uh, I have to say, I was probably one of the only uh, international journalists that actually sp- spoke to him before the Giro started. Uh, because, you know, actually, Jim and I, we were both kind of watching him 
and that comeback, you know, when you came back in August, you know, Almeida was really popping some good results. And I was like, you know, I want to talk to this guy. And uh, besides the Portuguese journalists, I don't think anybody really had a lot of interviews before going into that Giro. But I mean, for me personally, I think my standout rider is a little more close to home with Brandon McNulty. Uh, he didn't quite have as an impressive uh, Giro consistency as uh, Almeida. But I thought he rode a spectacular, uh, very solid rookie season. He had a couple of top five, top tens uh, in the first part of the season. And then when he came back into uh, the Giro, you know, he was he rode himself into the top ten, kind of had a, a rough ride in the second week. I think he kind of blew up at one of those uh, deeper mountain stages in the second week and struggled. But he never gave up. And that's, I think, uh, a lot of times when you're a young rider, having some of those rough races actually serves you better going into the future because, you know, now Amela, you know, he finished fourth, had the pink jersey for two weeks, you know, and everyone's going to expect him to win. Uh, so he's going to have a lot of pressure on him. Whereas uh, McNulty, I think he came in on in 15th overall on his first Grand Tour, you know, very solid performance. And I think he was, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, fourth in that final time trial in Milano. So it shows you the tank, the gas tank he has, he has a big, natural uh, horsepower. And I think McNulty for the future of U.S. cycling can probably emerge as, as a legitimate week-long to three-week Grand Tour rider, along with Sepp Kuss. You know, finally, Americans, we have some young riders who I think have a lot of promise. So I think McNulty is a rider that we can uh, really bank on going going forward. Yes, another friend of the podcast, Brandon McNulty, who, who called in to the podcast uh, on that first or second Giro rest day to talk about his TT performance and uh, how he was feeling pretty tired, but really uncorked one. And yeah, like you said, Hoodie, just a guy to keep an eye on for the future. Finally, we have another uh, GC star for Americans to cheer for. Uh, I love Brandon. I thought he had a great breakout season at the Giro d'Italia. But I, as the hammer, I'm going to come down and weigh on the side of Joao Almeida as well, um, because just... You know, we knew he was strong. He raced in the United States with uh, Hoggins Berman Auction. Action had a great ride at the Tour of Utah, I remember, last year. But, you know, doing well at the Tour of Utah to almost winning the Giro is a huge step up. And just what he was able to do, I, I, I just tip my, t- tip my cap to him. I cannot wait to watch what he blossoms into. So, Joao Almeida, you are our Rookie of the Year. So, that completes our list as we have our... GC riders, Tade Pogacar, our classics man to lead him through the hills is Wout van Aert. Our uh, puncher to chase stage wins is Mark Hershey. Our climbing domestique to shepherd Pogacar through the mountains is Sepkus. Our flats guy, we have Tim DeClerc and Michael Morkow, who are going to, we're like going to mush them together into one um, flats domestique. We have our TT rider, Filippo Ghana, our sprinter, Sam Bennett, to go after the stage wins, and our rookie, Joel Almeida. I mean, this is sort of like if the aliens were to come down and challenge the human race to a bike race for control of the universe. I feel like this would be a pretty good team that we could nominate. Uh, Hoodie, do you think that this squad could beat the beat the aliens in the battle for galactic supremacy of cycling? I think it's a pretty good lineup. I'd be surprised maybe Dave Brelsford is going to be listening to this podcast and sign all those guys to a contract going into next year. Wouldn't be be surprised. Yeah, he probably has them already. Um, (laughs) Oh, Brelsford. Yeah, friend of the podcast, Dave Brelsford, definitely (laughs) listening in. Hi, Dave. Um, We made our own uh, list for women's cycling as well, which, you know, 
because the women's schedule was um, more of a victim of COVID than the men's schedule was and so many races were called off, it actually made it a much easier choice for the women's cycling because there were just fewer races. So for our Grand Tour GC rider, we had Anna van der Breggen, of course. Uh, best Classic Star, we had Lizzie Dynan. Our Puncture slash Breakaway rider, we had Elisa Longo Borghini, who was um, such a star in some of those early races back. Our Best Pure Climber, was Annemiek van Vluten, even though her season was interrupted by a broken wrist, and we will always wonder what she could have accomplished in 2020. Our best flats domestique, Ellen van Dijk. Uh, our road captain, because we didn't have too many TTs this year, was Mariana Voss, because who wouldn't want to have Mariana Voss as their road captain? Uh, best sprinter, Jolene de Hoer, who won Ghent Wevelgem, and our breakthrough rider of the year, Evita Muzik. Hoodie, you spoke to Evita the other day. What can you tell us about her and uh, what can we expect from her in 2021? Yeah, interesting backstory with her. She's kind of this uh, new generation of riders that uh, we're seeing this more and more as the women's peloton becomes more professional. There's more teams. There's more resources being thrown at these races that the development of the riders, you know, they're coming through like uh, Corinne Rivera. You know, she came through the juniors program just like a traditional uh, pathway that the men's would do develop in the junior team u23 go into the uh professional ranks and we're of course seeing more and more riders like this so she came out of uh she's from the jura mountain region of uh france just a kind of a natural climber uh that team uh the f team has a lot of confidence in her they think that she can really emerge as a real grand, you know, as a stage race contender. And uh, that whole team, that whole organization, you know, the French F. Dejou, you know, that pro tour, world tour team has been supporting that women's team uh, for a decade. And they're all very excited about the prospect of having a women's tour to France. And I know that uh, that team and especially uh, Evita will, has that on her radar screen going into, uh, well, it's supposed to be in 2022. Yeah, young French rider, only 21 years old, and seeing what she was able to do winning a mountain stage at the Giro d'Italia, uh, you know, love to see uh, women coming on that early. Because oftentimes, you know, it's, I mean, w w cycling is a game where it's like it benefits those who are both strong and smart. And oftentimes it takes a few years to really learn sort of how to win at that level. So to see her winning that early, um, yeah, definitely a, a rider to watch. So we cannot wait to see if Vita Muzik what you're able to do in 2021 and beyond. Um, guys, let's take a quick break. Then we come back. We're going to blow through our stories of the year. Okay, we're back. Um, before we bid adieu to you in 2020, um, I wanted us to talk about some of the stories that we wrote this year that we were most proud of because it was a very strange year for cycling journalism. And as you uh, you know, looked at cyclingnews.com, velonews.com, all the other sites out there, you probably noticed that, oh boy, a lot of the stories had sort of the same kind of look and feel to them. And we've talked about on the podcast this year how, how challenging it was to record or to uh, report in the age of COVID-19 where, you know, we weren't able to talk to riders really at the finish line and um, how there were a lot of restrictions out there. It made our jobs a little bit more challenging, yet um, I was very pleased with the original reporting we did here in VeloNews.com about uh, what was going on with the season and how we you know, looked at the restrictions and found ways to get creative and to get, uh, get access to riders and write good stories. And so, Jim Cotton, I wanted to start off with you. You know, I asked... 
um, everyone to come up with the three stories they were most proud of this year and then to really talk about one of those stories. So the floor is yours. What were the three stories you wrote this year that you were most happy with? And take us inside one of those stories. So my list of three is one was about when I got locked in a hotel room at the uh, UAE tour, just because uh, it's so it was just so weird, and uh, hopefully it won't happen again. Another one was when I uh, spoke to various people within Trek Sagafredo, um, so team staffers, about what life was like inside the tour bubble, um, kind of going through all the COVID protocols. And the last one was about how all the graduates from Hagen's Berman, Berman Action were sort of were rocking it at the Giro d'Italia and a bit of background into the team. Um, so the one I'll discuss more rather than the two COVID-related ones is about Hagen's Berman <clears throat> Action and uh, how at the Giro d'Italia, you know, all of these young guys all of a sudden sort of came really good at that one race and um there was you know um obviously you had our uh joao joao um had Theo gegenhart who went on to win and a ton of others and spoke to them about how the team for them it's kind of more than a team it was like an extended family and how they all sort of stay in touch together and axel axel merckx who runs it sort of like a father figure to them still now and um i spoke to axel as well about you know how he how he developed the riders and what he did and kind of what he hopes for them in the future. So it was it was a very rewarding and kind of wide ranging story to to write. Well, and it was perfect timing because it came out just as the world learned that the team was facing a three hundred thousand dollar funding gap, which um, it sounds like they will be coming back in twenty twenty one. But for a while there, it was touch and go. And I think that seeing these riders do so well at the Giro and then Jim talking to them about what that team meant for them in their development really shed light on the fact that like if this team goes away, um, you know, cycling will lose this very important springboard for for identifying the next Joao Almaedas. And, you know, some of these guys like Teo, you know, he probably would have been snapped up by Team Sky um, earlier, whether or not he would have still had the success of the Giro, you know, who's to say, but, you know, Joao Almeida, Ruben Guerrero, there's definitely some names of riders who are having a lot of success right now where you could you could very clearly say they would not be having those success if it weren't for Axel Marx and that team. So, yeah, that was a great story, and I appreciate you doing it. Uh, on to you, Hoodie. What are your three stories, and which one were you most happy with? Yeah, kudos to Jim. He's really emerged as one of the really top young voices in cycling journalism. And Jim, we're very proud to have you part of the Velenus team. And you've had a really great. I mean, he's been the breakout journalist of the year, Fred. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, come on, he's on. He's on the dream team. Yes, you are our Mark Hershey slash Joao Almeida of uh, the Velenus team. For sure. Um, yeah, it was an interesting, it was, I found it to be quite an interesting season to, to, to be riding and in, in this kind of unprecedented times, you know, a world pandemic in and of itself is something that we've never lived through and hopefully we'll be getting through it by the end of next year. But there's so many different stories and angles that came out of, uh, out of this season. I thought it was to me, just to my, it kind of tickled my journalistic bones a little bit. I, I kind of, uh, not to say I enjoyed it, but it was a different challenge. And, uh, 
it, it, it delivered some interesting stories. Uh, a couple of things that stood out for me was just, uh, you know, one of the stories that uh, we were lucky enough to break in Velo News was, you know, the rules that were going into the Tour de France. And, and the story we broke right before the tour was this rule that, you know, two positive cases of COVID inside the race bubble meant uh, you're going to get t- kicked out of the Tour de France. None of that happened in the end, but it just kind of revealed uh, the kind of world we were living in. And another story is actually the biggest story of the year on Valonews.com in terms of uh, eyeballs was uh, kind of just cast a wide net at the end of the of the tour this year and and put together a bunch of the voices of, of kind of doubt about you know what the season you know what the performances were and is cycling credible in today's context. And I was really surprised that how many people read this story. And so it kind of underscored there's still just a lot of skepticism, I think, out there among the Reagan file fan about really what we're seeing in the Peloton, even though personally, after having personally lived through the 1990s and 2000s, I believe this Peloton is way cleaner than it's ever been in the history of professional racing. Um, not to say it's not all uh, Paniagua, but it's way a better place than it used to be. But the story that I enjoyed uh, writing the most was the profile we did on Sean Yates, who uh, ex-pro, kind of legendary person in the peloton you know he's kind of living off the grid he bought some kind of this chunk of uh land on a on the side of some hillside kind of near valencia down on the uh, kind of western eastern coast of uh, spain he literally lives off the grid he's kind of a quirky interesting guy he, you know raises his own uh fruits and vegetables there he has to truck in water he only has a battery so he can link up to uh you know he has like a plug-in for his uh you know gets the wi-fi has to stick his arm up to get a signal for his uh for his phone and uh you know just a great story kind of rehashing his career but also his kind of journey after uh, he almost had a really nasty fatal accident uh of all things of hedging uh, uh of trimming hedges in in the uk and uh just a great story and it was good to see a lot of people reading that because uh, Yates, if anybody knows him, is quite an interesting character. I love that story too, Hoodie. Um, the, the, yeah, when you read more about that injury, it makes you um, sort of squirm around in your chair because it sounds like it was probably the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. And we're all very happy that Sean Yates has survived that and is continuing to truck along in the world of cycling. Um, my three stories, uh, I had. I did a story over the summer about how Zwift um, is continues to shift its plans for policing pro races. And I talked to two riders who had been um, had their race results annulled and took me through the very lengthy and drawn out process that Zwift uses for like deciding to annul a race result and how that process has shifted throughout 2020 because, you know, Zwift pro racing at the beginning of the year was kind of nothing. And, you know, there were some people participating in these pro-am races. And then once um, regular in real life racing got shut down, all of a sudden there was this extra importance placed on Zwift racing and they had to come up with these new methods for uh, policing the events. Um, I did another one called From California Kid to Kermes King, which is a profile of a writer, American writer named Iman Lucas, who, you know, Iman is maybe not the most, uh, the biggest name you've ever heard of or the most like, you know, TJ Van Garder and level of talent, but he's a guy who has banged his head around in the um, Belgian and Dutch Kermes circuit for the last few years. And this past year had tremendous success, won I think 10 
Kermes races. I mean, these are, you know, amateur events that a lot of pros jump into. But if you talk to anyone who has gone and spent some time over in the Kermes scene, they are cutthroat. They are competitive. They're really hard to win. And for Iman to really blossom and win some of these races was interesting to see. Um, the third story and the one I'll talk about, though, is um, a piece I wrote for the magazine called Can Rob G. Martini Save USA Cycling? And it was based off a number of interviews I did with Rob, as well as just a lot of people in the U.S. cycling scene. Uh, Rob D. Martini stepped in as CEO of USA Cycling, and he has stepped into um, just a really challenging situation with membership on the decline, race days on the decline. As we all know, the American cycling scene is really um, changing, and how he has been trying to reach out to Oh, scenes that are experiencing success, like the U.S. gravel scene, um, NICA, and to try and create partnerships and see if, um, you know, USA Cycling can work alongside some of these groups that um, it hasn't in the past, groups that are very skeptical of USA Cycling and sort of any involvement with like what you would call the traditional structures of cycling in the UCI and groups that, you know, kind of have a kind of have a punk rock appeal and, and don't want to be mainstream. Um, and yet, you know... Martini realizes that if USA Cycling is going to succeed and continue, kind of has to forge partnership with these groups. Um, and then midway through reporting that story, of course, COVID-19 hit, which just put even more pressure on USA Cycling. And they had to lay off a lot of staff and their budget took this huge hit. And, you know, my sense is that I, I actually, I, I think that you know, USA Cycling is an organization that takes a tremendous amount of criticism in the American cycling scene. Um, you talk to people who work at USA Cycling and you realize that, you know, all of them have the best intentions in mind. All of them love cycling. All of them want nothing than to see American cycling, not just USA Cycling, but American cycling succeed and thrive and do well. And yet somehow you, uh, you know, you you put these people through the structure of USA Cycling, what USA Cycling is, is meant to do and, and what they're trying to do and the messaging and everything like that. People react really negatively to that. I saw that a couple of weeks ago when I did this piece about, you know, USA Cycling's new development plan where, hey, it's going to be an academy where kids... Kids pay money and they can learn how to be a pro cyclist and go race overseas. And just the reaction to that online was so negative and so angry. And it's like you talk to people inside the organization and it's like, well, you know, it's kind of this is this system is going to be better than the one was beforehand. And it's not just out of greed. It's because we want to expand this thing. And by creating revenue opportunities, we can bring people into the system who might otherwise not be able to afford it. And it's just like, you know, USA Cycling gets criticized when they don't do anything. And then they get criticized when they do something. And so, I, you know, I do not envy Rob Martini and the position he is in. Uh, but I do think that he has the creative thinking, the management to um, to really improve USA Cycling. And, and I hope he does. And that's a storyline I'm keeping my eye on in 2021 and beyond. Um, anyway, guys, we are out of time. Um, I want to thank both of you, Jim Cotton and uh, Andrew Hood, for your very strong work this year on VelaNews and VelaNews.com. And I want to thank the listeners and readers for continuing to listen to the podcast, read the website, check out the magazine, because um, if you guys aren't consuming the content we produce it's it's you know then then what the heck are we doing and um it just seems like throughout this challenging year i was really happy to see that you know you all did continue to read and continue to you know seek out your passion for cycling uh with fellow news what else you guys got before we uh, sign off here did i miss anything all right 
Well, gentlemen, I have a rest of uh, a great rest of 2020, and we will catch up with you in the new year. All right, Fred. Thank you. Cheers, Fred. Cheers.